evening. It is time to begin. Good to see everyone tonight. The last, last week I was gone and my brother Cleet talked for me and I was told that he said he starts on time and uh, he is rigid. He's really super disciplined and uh, I'm give or take a minute here or there, but uh, it is past time to begin. So let's have a word of prayer and we will get into the book of Acts. Our dear Father in heaven, we're so very thankful for the opportunity to study from your word. We're thankful for each person who is here tonight. Father, we know the weather has kept some home. We're thankful that we have the uh, stream that people can watch and participate and be a part of our study, even when they're unable to make it out. Our Father, we pray that you will bless our eldership. Please give these men faith and courage and strength to be what they should be in your sight. Our Father, we're thankful for the work that they do. We know that they face many difficult things uh, of which we are even unaware. Our Father, we pray that you will bless each teacher tonight, be with them in their classes, and each week as they prepare. We thank you for the good that's done at the Willow Avenue congregation. We pray that each of us will be stronger, that we will glorify you in all that we do. We offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are in Acts chapter 15. So what I want to do is to bring us up to speed first. In Acts 13 and 14, we, uh, Paul and Barnabas had the first missionary journey. And so if we zoom in a little bit here, you can see the uh, blue here is where they started their journey. And they traveled... I'm just going to go through it really quickly here. They go to Derby, Iconium, back to Antioch, uh, Perga, Italia, and then they go back to Antioch. Antioch is the church that sent them out, and it is kind of the center of all of the missionary journeys. So along the way, they had a number of converts who were Gentiles. So when they get back to Antioch and they start talking about what they've done and the reports that... Uh, all of the Gentile conversions, it's not very long, and we learn that some Jews from Jerusalem, you can see Jerusalem down here, it says that some of the Jews from Jerusalem came up to Antioch and started taking issue with them because they said, well, this is great that all these Gentiles were converted, but they have to be circumcised. Now, I told you that I believe that Galatians chapter 2 fits in at this point in time. Because what we learn in Galatians chapter 2 is that uh, Galatians 2 and verse 11, Paul writes, Now Peter had come to Antioch, and I had to withstand him to the face. And you remember, I won't go through the whole thing again, but Peter comes to Antioch, and he's interacting with the Gentiles, and everything is great. And then certain people come from Jerusalem, and we're told that Peter pulls back from them. And he won't have anything to do with the Gentiles. He won't have anything. Uh, he won't eat with them or fellowship them. And then Paul withstands him publicly. He says, you are wrong. You know good and well that this is not right. God has taken down any distinction between us. And so he calls Peter out publicly. I believe this fits in this uh, time period. Some people disagree. It's not that big a deal. But I believe that's... Uh, where it fits. Now, this issue, when these Jews come and say that uh, the Gentiles have to be circumcised, this becomes a huge issue for the rest of the New Testament. 
Uh, I mentioned to you, here's Galatians chapter 2 that I believe fits in here. In Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6, when Paul writes to the church in Galatia, and he says, I marvel that you're so soon called away from the grace of Christ to a different gospel. There are those who would pervert the gospel. He's talking about these Judaizing teachers who were trying to mix the law of Moses with the law of Christ. So you get to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1, and he asked them, Oh, foolish Galatians, did you receive the Spirit, that is, the Holy Spirit, by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? That is, when the Holy Spirit came into you and you came, began to do miraculous abilities, was that because of following the law of Moses or did that come with the law of Christ? Which one? Remember, the point of the miraculous abilities was to confirm the message. Which message was it confirming? He's asking, this is obvious. There was an obvious purpose of the Holy Spirit coming. You go to Colossians. What do you see? He talks about those. He says, in Him, in Christ, you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. See, this issue of circumcision is going to constantly be an issue. So when he says, in him, that is, if you're a Christian, you are circumcised, but it's the circumcision made without hands. What's he talking about? If you're in Christ, you are circumcised. Not physically. It's not the, the circumcision where they actually use their hands and cut you. But he says, it is a circumcision that comes, notice the next line, by the circumcision of Christ, when you are buried with him in baptism. And so when you are baptized, you are spiritually circumcised. The point of circumcision in the Old Testament was to identify you as one of God's people. All the Jews, all of God's people had to be circumcised. He's saying in the New Testament to be identified as one of God's people. It's not a circumcision made with hands. It's the circumcision that comes when you are baptized into Christ. What does that mean? When you're baptized into Christ, you're one of God's people. You don't have to be physically circumcised. Why is he saying it to the Colossians? Because this same issue is going on over there. Now look at verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, that is the Old Testament, he says, having nailed it to the cross, verse 16, so let no man judge you in food or drink or regarding the festivals or the new moons or the Sabbaths. Now, let me just summarize all of this very quickly. This becomes a big issue starting in Acts 15, and it goes through the rest of the New Testament. There are Jews who are saying you have to accept the law of Moses, and almost every book of the New Testament is dealing with this in some way or another. He's telling them it's not a physical circumcision. It is a circumcision uh, symbolically, spiritually, the old law has been nailed to the cross, so don't let people judge you with regard to the Sabbath day anymore, or which is interesting when you think about the Seventh-day Adventist who are saying you have to keep the Sabbath. He says, that's not applicable, or with regard to which you can eat and drink. That's been nailed to the cross. You don't have to keep the old law anymore. And so, 2 Timothy 2.15 becomes a very important verse to us. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman who needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You need to know what's Old Testament, you need to know what's Law of Moses, and you need to know what applies to us. How are you going to know that? 
How are you going to make these distinctions? By studying. What if you don't study and you don't know what applies to us and what applies to them? Well, he says, then you're workmen who ought to be ashamed in the sight of God. Now, you might say, well, everybody knows that today. You know, we understand we're under the law of Christ and not the law of Moses. Can you think of anything from the Old Testament that people still try to make application of today? Ten Commandments. Oh, yeah, I, that one didn't cross my mind, but that's a prime one, isn't it? Don't people go back to the Ten Commandments and try to bind that on us today? Do you understand that we're not under the Ten Commandments today? And do you understand how to teach that to someone? Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman who needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. If you don't understand that, you need to study it. And if you don't, then you ought to be ashamed. See, this is important stuff. You might do a lesson on the Ten Commandments and somebody says, ah, that's not important. The Lord says it's very important. What else from the Old Testament do people try to bind on us today? Tithing, that's another one. Don't you hear the denominational world still talking about tithing? Tithing's not taught in the New Testament. We're to give as we have prospered. 10% is a principle there we can learn from, but the, the idea of tithing is not taught. What else do people pull from the Old Testament and make application of today? Instrumental music. People always go, they use instruments, and then where do they go to justify it? Go to the Old Testament. I just mentioned to you the Sabbath day. There are those who go back and try to bind the Sabbath. In fact, I have seen, there's been a movement for years, but I've seen a strong revival of it in recent times where people are saying that there are two Gospels today. They say that there is the Gospel for the Jews and the Gospel for the Gentiles. There's Peter's Gospel and Paul's Gospel. And so they say that is still applicable today. The Jews still have to keep circumcision and certain law aspects of the law of Moses, but the Gentiles, they only have to keep the things listed in Acts chapter 15. So there's a sense in which this is still going on. It still hasn't died. But Paul is saying this has been nailed to the cross. And Christians have to be able to understand this and know what to do with this. All right, so let's keep going here. Um, Let's pick up at, um, let's see, where do I want to start? Let's pick up at uh, Acts 15 too, and we'll do a little bit of reviewing. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. It became such a knockdown drag out in Antioch that they said, what we're going to do is we're going to go to Jerusalem, We'll discuss it with the elders, with the apostles, everybody, and then we will see what the word is on this. All right, verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. So along the way, they stopped and they told about their journeys. They weren't going to waste the trip. Verse 4. And when they'd come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. Verse 5, But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, that is, who believed, that means they were Christians, but they used to be Pharisees. When they started hearing about the conversions, what did they say? Hey, it's necessary to, to uh, circumcise them. Notice this, 
and to command them to keep the law of Moses. What does that mean? What's that? Okay. Not, what, what he says is you have to circumcise them and keep the law of Moses. That means they're not just drawing the line at circumcision. There's other a- aspects of the law of Moses that they're also say, going to say that you have to keep. What are all those? I don't know. I've got the idea some of them are what we just mentioned in Colossians chapter 2, which is the reason Paul says, don't let them judge you with regard to uh, what you can eat, what you can drink, the Sabbaths, the, the, the new moons. Why is he mentioning those? Probably because those were some of the very things that they're trying to bind. All right? So these people spoke up and they said, you've got to circumcise them and they've got to keep the law of Moses. This is interesting to me because it says these are people that believe. That means they're Christians now. But they used to be of the sect of the Pharisees. When a person becomes a Christian, do all of your old ways and mindsets just go away? Can you think of an example of someone in the New Testament, even in the book of Acts that we've studied, who after he became a Christian... One of his old temptations immediately gets a hold of him. Simon the sorcerer, he's such a classic example. He becomes a Christian, and then he sees these miracles being done, and immediately he says, I want to do that. And he seeks to buy it. Can you think of a temptation that might still be there for a Christian today? person becomes a Christian, and what kind of temptations might he still deal with? Um, I do think they had, uh, there was some anger there because the dissension is sharp between them. And when the apostles, they come down and they bring this up, immediately, every city they go in, they bring this up. This is a sharp contention. So what things might be stumbling blocks for people today? You name it. Whatever used to be a stumbling block for you, when you become Christian, it doesn't just go away. What if you used to drink? When you become a Christian, does that temptation no longer exist for you? What if um, lying was something that you practiced on a regular basis? You learn the truth, you repent, you obey the gospel. Are you not tempted to do that anymore? So what do you do when you're faced with these temptations? What's that? You can pray about it. Absolutely pray that you can uh, have the strength to withstand these. What you're going to do when you're faced with these things is you're going to have to think to yourself, I want to be. You know, um, Matthew 5, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. That means you really want it. You're going to have to be determined when you're tempted, I want to be righteous and I want to be right with God more than I want to give in to this temptation. And so it's going to be a fight. It's going to be something that might, uh, you might struggle with for a long time. Eventually, you'll get stronger. So what if you're a person who loses your temper a lot? What do you do with that? You become a Christian, you don't lose your temper a lot? You become a Christian, and now you start thinking, i got to control myself. This is not the way a Christian behaves. And so you start working on it, and working on it, 
and working and you study about it. You know what happens over the years when you apply these Christian principles and the fruits of the Spirit? You know what, the, when we talk about the term fruits of the Spirit, you know what that means? The word fruit is a Greek word that means it, it literally is translated as the product of. So what would be the product of an apple tree? An apple, that would be the fruit of the tree, right? So the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has taught things that are laid out in the Word of God, and those teachings are going to bring forth fruit. They're going to teach something. If you take the Word of God and you apply it to your life, it's going to start bringing forth certain products in your life. So you diligently add these things to your life, and you study, and you work on these things, and you know what? Over time, you start changing as a person. Jimmy? Sure. And so Interesting. I've never made that distinction before. Um, but yeah, you've got to work on every one of these things in your life because you're trying to grow. And over time, you start becoming a different person because as you're working and changing and growing, it's not that you're ever going to be perfect, nor does God expect that. But you take a person who's been a Christian for a week and he's trying to apply these principles and you take a person who's been a Christian for 20 years, are they going to be different? Take a man and a woman who are husband and wife, and maybe they've got, you know, the typical problems back and forth, and they become Christians. Is their marriage perfect all of a sudden? No. Now, as they start trying to apply Christian principles, and they start changing 10 years later, is their marriage going to be different? Yeah, it should be because they're working on themselves, and it's going to change them. So anyway, I say all that because these guys were Pharisees. They become Christians, and they still have the mind of Pharisees. What was the attitude? What were Pharisees known for? Rigid, strictness, binding where God hasn't bound. So they're Christians now. But they're still Pharisees. I mean, they still have some of these characteristics about them. So anyway, they said, you got to be circumcised, and you got to keep the law of Moses, and they're ready to fight about this thing. Verse 6, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there was much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the gospel and believe. This is very interesting to me that Peter is the one who speaks up because Peter is the one who messed up in Antioch. Remember, Peter gets caught up in this, but now Peter speaks up and he says, brethren, God has accepted the Gentiles. I really like this because with Peter, he repeatedly in his life shows that a man can goof up, but then he can turn around and fix it. This is the real measure of a man, humility. 
Can you think of other times Peter messes up, but then he fixes it? You can probably think of a lot of them, can't you? That'd be an interesting sermon just to go through all the times where Peter puts his foot in his mouth. But Peter repeatedly turns around and he fixes it. So if I'm right that Galatians chapter 2 coincides with the beginning of Acts chapter 15 and Peter is the one who is doing wrong and Paul rebukes him to the face, what that means is they went down to Jerusalem and Peter stands up and says, what Paul was saying is exactly right. And he begins to defend it. And that's what's so incredible. I think that's why so many people love and appreciate Peter. He was a man that had that kind of heart. Can we learn something from that? What application can we make from that to our own lives? Sometimes I'm going to mess up. Sometimes what happens when you take a position and then you find out you're wrong? What do you want to do? What gets involved in that? Pride. I just did a sermon on that the other day. Our pride gets involved in that, and uh, you don't want to say you're wrong. And then sometimes, have you ever, don't say it out loud, but have you ever taken a position and then someone stands up against you and says you're wrong, and you actually realize you're wrong, but you dig your heels in because you've already kind of taken that position now? Have you ever done that? You ever done that in your marriage? There's some people smiling, so I know who's done it, because I can look around and see you right now. I'm honest enough to say I have done that, and at times I've done it, and I felt ashamed of myself because I knew I was doing it. Peter apparently was not that kind of guy. Peter was a man who had the right kind of heart, and he was going to say, I was wrong, brethren, this is right. So he says, by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the gospel, verse 8, so God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. What does Peter mean when he says that God acknowledged them? What he's saying is, God said, I accept the Gentiles. God acknowledged them. How did God acknowledge them? He said by giving them the Holy Spirit. Some people believe that that means that when they became Christians, the Holy Spirit came and dwelt in their hearts. I do not believe that. I've told you that many times. I believe the way that God acknowledged them was by giving them the Holy Spirit. We've got here Acts 10 and verse 44. This goes back to Cornelius. And while Peter was still speaking these words, that's when he says, by my mouth, and while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believe were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. What was the gift of the Holy Spirit that was poured out on the Gentiles? Look at verse 46. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. I believe the gift of the Holy Spirit was the miraculous. That's what it was in Acts 2. It's the same thing in Acts 10. The Holy Spirit is poured out. They began to speak in tongues. Peter and the Gentiles, they're astonished. Why? Because God acknowledged the Gentiles. He's saying, the Gentiles are going to be my people. That was hard to swallow for them. So on this occasion, when there's this back and forth about the Jews and the Gentiles, Peter looks back to Cornelius' house and he says, hey, y'all remember, by my mouth... God acknowledged 
the Gentiles. All right, verse 9, and he made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. What does he mean when he says he made no distinction between us and them? What do you take that to mean? All right, we're the same. We are all his chosen people. How would that feel to a Jew? There's no distinction between... Now, you've got to remember this, too. Some of these Gentiles, what would their religion have been before they obeyed the gospel? You're talking about people who were pagans. What does it mean to be a pagan? We throw the word around lightly today, but what's it mean to be a pagan? They worshipped idols. Uh, what else would pagans have done? Okay, they would have broken a lot of them. In fact, part of the worship of being a pagan involved orgies. Can you imagine as part of your worship that they engaged in orgies? They bowed down to idols and said, oh, you're the God of heaven. A lot of immorality was part of their worship. Some of them, I don't know uh, the date of all of the, these things stopping, but you know, historically, offering their children was part of it. Drinking blood was a regular part. That's going to come up here in a minute. Now, how did Jews look at people who did those kind of things? Oh, man, this is terrible. Now, these people obeyed the gospel. They've repented. They're casting off those things. And Peter says, God's made no distinction between us and them. They're his people, assuming they've repented and obeyed the gospel, just like we are. Do you think that's going to be a problem for some of the Jews? Oh, man, this is a big problem for them. He says he made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, when he says purifying their hearts by faith, some people use this verse to teach faith only. Let me show you. Uh, here's the verse. Made no, no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. I found this particular website. This is the Joseph Prince Ministries. He says, this brings me to my next point at the Jerusalem Council. That's Acts 15. Peter stated that the hearts of the Gentile believers were purified by faith. Acts 15, 9. Not by works but by their believing right, believing that those who had believed in the Lord would receive remission of their sins and be made the righteousness of God. Can you see that? He says, how are we made righteous today? How are our hearts purified today? By faith in our Lord's finished work at the cross. He is really, and he goes on, I just took this little clip to make the point, he is really camping out on this phrase, purified by faith. He's saying you don't have to do anything. He says it's the finished work at the cross. Anytime you hear someone talking about the finished work at the cross, you know that they don't believe baptism's necessary. You know that they believe faith only. Finished work at the cross, they camp out on that to mean you don't have to do anything. Is that what this verse means when he says that their hearts were purified by faith? Well, of course, we know that's not what he means. In fact, I want to show you something else. This is actually the Greek text, and this is a parallel. In fact, uh, look here. 
Do you see this phrase right here in the literal? It says, uh, by the faith, having purified, and notice this. Do you see this word, tain? This is the Greek word for the. What it literally means is, having our hearts purified by the faith. Not by faith only and not by belief only. It says that our hearts have been purified by the faith. So what does that mean? Is that different? Okay, and that's true. Anything that you have faith in, faith that doesn't act, isn't biblical faith. But the word faith is used in different ways in the Bible. You've got, first you've got faith in the sense of personal belief. The word faith is sometimes used, like Romans 14, to refer to scruples. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. But then, oftentimes in the New Testament, you read about the faith. When you read about the faith, what is that? That's the gospel. He's just talking about the New Testament system. So you've got the Old Testament, which is the law, and the New Testament, which is called the faith. So when he says to them, remember what the argument is here? They're saying they have to keep the law, they have to be circumcised and keep the law. But Peter says, we know that their hearts were purified by the faith. What's he saying? The contrast that he's making here is, these people, we know that God identified and acknowledged them when he gave them the Holy Spirit, and he purified their hearts when they obeyed the faith. That is, it wasn't the law that purified them. It was the gospel system that purified. This has nothing to do with faith only. This is the new law versus the old law. That's the whole discussion, right? He's arguing about which one they had to obey, and they were purified by the faith. All right, verse 10. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? You're trying to go back and tell them they have to keep the law of Moses? Nobody's been able to keep the law of Moses except Jesus. He says, you're going back and telling them they have to do that which you weren't able to do, I wasn't able to do. Nobody's been able to do it ever and so now you're going to go back and say, now that it's been lifted, I know you have to keep it. This is very interesting to me because there are some people that I believe treat Christianity like it is a, a yoke that is too heavy to bear. About three weeks ago, there was a lectureship in Missouri and they got to discussing and arguing about 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us of all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. They got to talking about this, and they said, some people believe that if you walk in the light, that you just remain clean. They said that they believe that you stay in a clean state with God, and that you don't have to confess your sins. 
They said people who teach this are false teachers. And they said, like Don Blackwell, and they called me out in the lecture show, I started getting text messages from people. Have you seen this? And then they said, and like Guy in Woods, and like Glenn Colley, and they started naming names of people that were uh, faithful gospel preachers. And this is what their position was. This is what their position is. It's online if anybody wants to go see it. He calls me out by name numerous times. And uh, I wouldn't pay any attention to it except people kept sending me messages. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, that is a present active subjunctive, which literally means it's in the present tense. If we continue, literally it means if we keep on confessing. So if we keep on walking in the light, part of walking in the light is continuing to confess our sins. It's part of our life. As long as we keep doing that, we have the continual cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ. This is their position. Their position is, if you walk in the light, when you sin, you're lost. And then when you confess your sin, you are saved again. And you have the continual cleansing. And then if you have some sort of an evil thought, or you do something wicked, you're lost. And then when you confess your sin, you're saved again. I have talked about that many times and told you that that I describe as saved, lost, saved, lost, saved, lost Christianity. And if you see how this is written in the Greek, that is not what they are describing here. That is not what John is saying. John is not saying that a man who is walking in the light, every time he has an evil thought, he has now sinned and he's damned to hell until he confesses it and then he's saved again. I want you to think about the implications of this, if this were true. Let's say that you've got, we were talking about a person who just obeyed the gospel and he's still struggling with things from his past. Let's say you've got a person who is a new convert. And this person, he's been a Christian for a week. There's a lot that he doesn't know. Is he going to commit sins that he's not even aware of? Of course he is. Let's say that he gets up in the morning and he commits some sin, he's not even aware of it. What's his condition? According to what they're saying, he would be lost. Let's say at the end of the day, he says, Lord, I know I may have committed some sins today that I'm unaware of. Would you please forgive me for those? What would his condition be? According to them, he would be saved. Let's say every day he does that. 10 o'clock in the morning, he commits a sin. 10 o'clock at night, he prays, Lord, please forgive me. 10 o'clock in the morning, he commits that sin. At 12 o'clock in the afternoon, he has a heart attack and dies. What's his condition? According to their position, he would be lost. Brethren, that is not what the Bible teaches. Now, the fact that I'm saying that is not what the Bible teaches, they're saying I'm a false teacher and that Guy in Woods is a false teacher, and they are saying that um, because the Bible says, if we confess our sins, I have never brought this up to anyone who's been able to answer this scenario. 
I have gotten in heated discussions with a few people and I've said, what about the person who is a new convert and they don't even know? And what I've been told is, well, there are, if a person doesn't know, then that's covered by grace. And I said, um, you're making stuff up. Where's your verse for that? There's no verse that says, if you don't know it, it's covered. You are just making that up. You see, they're putting you in a situation where the reason I'm bringing this up at this point is they are putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which no one is able to bear. Jimmy? <laughs> yeah, because the more knowledge you get, uh, then the worse off you're going to be, right? So the more ignorant you are... Yeah. I believe if a person, in fact, when I preached this, someone said, would you preach a sermon on what it means to walk in the light? If a person is walking in the light and he's doing his best to be a faithful Christian, he is continually being cleansed by the blood of Christ. And part of that is anytime he's aware of a sin, he's going to confess it because that's part of walking in the light. He's regularly praying and that's why this being in the present active subjunctive carries with it the idea that he's continually confessing sins because that's part of walking in the light. Someone said, this was their quote, Don Blackwell teaches once saved, always saved in a new little coat. Because I believe that you have continual cleansing that keeps a person saved. We can, have, we can continue this discussion at a later time, but... I would put the belief that they're holding into the category of putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither us nor they are able to bear. That, that, that would make Christianity impossible. All right, we'll stop right there and pick up next week. Thanks for your input.